can't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow's much too long. Is that a real song? Make that up as you go. It's a real song. Okay. You're listening to The Dap Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm Aaron Stallworth. The Dap Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through Dap, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. Season four is dedicated to exploring resilience, how we hope, experience setbacks, and recover to continue pursuing our biggest ambitions. Today, we're talking with Councilmember Kenya McDuffie, who represents Ward 5 in our hometown of Washington, D.C. McDuffie takes us into the stronghold community that shaped his unexpected path to public service, where he uses legislation to address structural race-based inequities. The voices of family, friends, and Freeway reassure McDuffie that setbacks are temporary, and he's here to win. All right, welcome to the Dap Project. Our latest guest is someone I met probably a little over a century, not century, century, decade, <laughs> decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> A decade ago, a mutual friend introduced me to someone who would be running for uh, our Ward 5 council member, and I was uh, eager and excited to meet him. I knew he was a Howard grad, uh, and in being able to hear his message about what it, he saw for the future of D.C., I want to welcome Kenya McDuffie to the DAP Project. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to have you here. So, Kenyon, um, this is the DAP Project, and we always start out talking about just that doubt if you can think back what was your first experience with doubt so in my neighborhood there were a lot of kids growing up uh, and and I live in and we'll probably talk about this I live in the same neighborhood where my dad grew up in the same house actually mm. uh, that's been in my family since 1952 and so my earliest memories are of being surrounded by family and extended family, um, you know, play uncles and aunties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that is just as common to me as, you know, waking up and walking outside. I mean, it was, it was everywhere uh, in my neighborhood uh, from folks, you know, coming up to the deck and spending a little time with my dad, uh, seeing my dad, you know, dab somebody up. Or, you know, being on the basketball court down by Bryan Street or the one up uh, near Gerard Street. So, I mean, my earliest memories are of just community and, and close-knit, extended family, blue-collar, working-class people uh, who all knew each other. So would you say death kind of always existed as part of your, you, your life, your culture? Yeah, no, it, it, it's always existed. And even though there are things that are changing around uh, in that neighborhood, uh, it still exists. In fact, uh, while we are, are filming this right now, some of my, my uh, friends are from the neighborhood are all playing softball. Uh, and it's about 50 people uh, up at the field uh, at Fort Lincoln right now. So, so it's always existed. And uh, if I'm, I'm lucky enough, privileged enough, blessed enough, it will always exist um, for me Absolutely. in that neighborhood and for my family. So formerly, I guess you would 
take on the title of politician. Key and Peel have a cool skit going around. It's pretty much going viral. Of um, I think uh, Peel or Key, I always get them mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, impersonating Obama, and Obama is going around the crowd, uh, greeting them, and he comes to certain uh, members of the crowd and gives them dap. He goes Those to other black people. Indeed, <laughs> black people. And he goes to other members of the crowd and maybe just gives gives a regular handshake or hello, how you doing? Um, <laughs> do you ever find yourself in that situation where does everybody get the same handshake or do you? No, everybody doesn't get the same handshake. <laughs> and anybody that tells you that who's elected official, um, look, it, it is almost unspoken, right? I mean, when you're walking up to somebody, as you approach, you see it, you feel it. And as the hand starts to raise, either it's going to raise and go extended like this, or it's going to raise and it's going to come back like this. And you're going, I mean, it's just, it's just natural. And, and either you have it or you don't. Uh, and quite frankly, everybody just doesn't have it. <laughs> so, you know, like it, it is, no, everybody does not get the same uh, handshake. Some people get that. Other people uh, get a wave. Some people get a half hug. Uh, a lot of different iterations of a greeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the dap is not universal by any stretch of the imagination. And we, we say black people, but that's not universal with black people because that energy may not be emanating from. Facts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see it. You can see right. it. Right? You, you can see it. it. You, you feel, feel it. it. Yeah. I hear that DAP has gone afoul on one or two instances where you're like, uh, not that guy. Yeah, you can tell. Like when, when, you, when, when you get an embrace or you think you get – I've not, it's not been many occasions where I think I've gotten it wrong, though, right? And so maybe I'm, I'm just experiencing. No, I'm, I'm just, guy, like the Oh, core, I got you. Okay, okay. energy is coming across. Oh, yes, there, like, there is some. Not in a million years. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No, no, I mean, you can, you can see it coming, too. Yeah. If they start too far away, <laughs> you've been working on it. And if you got to practice, then, uh, nope. Yeah. The first greeting is the energy's not right, so you get the regular handshake. But after you spend some time with that individual, the, the greeting goodbye may be actual dap and embrace because... Maybe they prove themselves. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps. Or, or if, you, if you expect that, you know, maybe you're in a different kind of environment and you start to shake a hand and then you feel them sort of twisted on you and then you pull them close. I guess, I mean, it's natural. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those things where um, you don't have to talk about it. You know, like, look, I'm going to dap you up. Uh, <laughs> that never happens, Talk right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's natural. It's natural. And I think uh, it's one of those things that just—it just is. So, in this season of the DAP Project, we're exploring resilience. We're talking about what it means to to recover. So, the way we think about it is that resilience has a couple components. There's an aspiration for something, and then there is a setback, and then there's a recovery. We think that part of the aspiration is rooted in joy, that you have a vision of the future, and this vision is um, its good. Mm-hmm. It's something that you're looking forward to. So tell us a little bit about the joy of growing up in the Stronghold neighborhood. And if folks aren't familiar with the streets and where that is, anchor us a little bit. Sure, absolutely. In, in I, would, I would love to. It's not, it's not a common neighborhood uh, in terms of um, just expressing recognition uh, and, and people understanding what Stronghold is all about. So just to anchor people, it is North Capitol Street, 
to the west. It is Michigan Avenue to the north, to the south. Uh, it's probably Bryan Street, but it's actually Prospect Cemetery as well as Glenwood. Um, and so um, you've got these natural uh, boundaries or, or, or sort of barriers that keep folks from flowing naturally in and out of Stronghold, which was great for kids growing up and, and, and you know, where we played ball on the concrete, right? Um, but it is small, it's close-knit, and it's technically a part of Edgewood. Uh, and it's, it actually got its name uh, because of uh, sports teams. And, and back when my dad was going up, my story starts in, in the 70s in Stronghold. I was born in 75, but the story of the McDuffies in the neighborhood starts back in 1952 uh, when my grandparents bought the house, uh, which, which is only four years after the Supreme Court decided the case of Shelley V. Kramer uh, that said that the federal government could no longer enforce racially restrictive covenants. There is a racially restrictive covenant uh, on my home. Uh, which I just pulled a few years ago. I actually read it. Uh, and so it starts then, it evolves, but they started calling themselves uh, Stronghold with the sports team, baseball, football, uh, basketball, cheerleading. Um, and, and after a while, it just stuck. So this was the 50s, 60s. And I think it was very fitting that they referred to themselves as Stronghold. And it's fitting that I think it goes almost synonymous with resilience, frankly, uh, in the way that things evolved over the decades in that neighborhood. Uh, for me, growing up in the 70s, uh, again, within the home, it was joy. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Um, my mom is also, like my dad, a native Washingtonian. Uh, she grew up at Tenton Park Road. Uh, and, and for us, it was about family in the home and the values that, that my parents stressed, you know, education, uh, really you know, anchored us uh, being uh, in that community. All you had to do was walk out the door, and you, and you were like, it was all joy, right? Whether it was the things that were happening on Sunday when people were going to church, or it was the cookouts, you know, when the weather got warm, or it was going down to Haynes Point or some other park to play, watch the older folks play uh, softball or basketball. Mm -hmm. um, those memories are indelibly etched in my mind. And, you know, although things have changed in the neighborhood, you know, I want to convey that. My wife and I want to convey that to our daughters, that sense, the same sense of family, uh, those values about education, working hard, uh, treating people the way you want to be treated, like building your village and understanding and recognizing that you have that village, right, um, that, that helps to pick you up and dust you off when you fall. Um, we had those lessons. I had those lessons um, in, in my neighborhood. And, and although, you know, from the 70s to the 80s, there were transitions, and you saw people who worked, had two-parent households start to shift with the, the crack epidemic and, and just the, the, you know, the district devolving into the murder capital. Um, I think the anchors, the roots were still deep, and the values were still there. You know, it just, you know, crack hit the city, you know, like it hit most cities where you had people of color, black folks in particular. It hit us hard. Um, and it hit my neighborhood hard. Um, you know, small neighborhood, but any day of the week, you had, you know, two to three open-air drug markets. Um, a lot of premature birth, death, prison. Um, but I feel like, you know, let me, let me, I, I feel like I'm moving too fast, and so I'm going to slow it down a bit. But resilience was built into the streets and the alleys of my neighborhood. And, and you know, uh, fortunately, I got it really early. And fortunately, frankly, I had two older brothers who, who I was privileged to watch make mistakes that I could sit back and say, hmm, 
maybe not the wisest decision to make, right? And so I, you know, some of the things that that you know they did, both my two brothers, biological brothers, but also my extended uh, brothers, uh, I could learn uh, those lessons and, and try not to, to to repeat those mistakes. Let's lift up some of those people in particular as you were transitioning into talk about talking about how crack did hit the city and it didn't get here by itself. Just want to put that out there. Um, who are some of the folks who taught you those lessons? So when you think about this person, maybe you want to talk a little bit more sure. about your brothers and a way that they helped you to develop resilience. Is there a particular story that stands out in your mind where people helped you or taught you how to bounce back? A story. That's tough. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a community full of stories. I mean, from, you know, we call them seed. Uh, Seahead, Kevin, you know, Dave, Williams, who, who's the C Scooter, who's the C uh, Dougie, um, and everybody had a nickname, by the way. Of course. My dad's generation, the generation right above me, my generation, fewer nicknames. Um, Nobody knows government uh, names. Right, right, exactly, right. But but like all my uncles, Gene, Skeet, uh, my extended uncle, Stanley Rag, Chicken, I mean, those guys, <laughs> it was, you know, watching those guys pack us into somebody's car um, to take us down to the field, you know, to play against some other neighborhood, right? It was, it was you know, watching them joke around down by the corner store, you know, having a beer, having a cookout, and bringing us all together, right? Whether it was the 4th of July or Memorial Day. Uh, and even as my dad's generation started to leave the neighborhood, they would always come back, right? And so when I see today, you know, in certain communities that I represent and other places where I don't, where people are calling the police because a lot of guys or women are hanging out, right? And, you know, maybe they're drinking a beer or maybe they're smoking weed. Um, culturally, it is not something new to me, right? I mean, culturally, it is something that, that I've spent my entire life being immersed in uh, where, you know, perhaps it is negative to some folks, but it was something that communities, at least the ones that I was familiar with, did. Uh, uh, frequently, and 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 there were lessons in that. You know, lessons that I derived. Um, some spoken, many unspoken, about how you stick together, how you look out for each other. If somebody gets fired, then you get them a job. You know, with you, you know, cleaning the building, or or you know, try to give them a government job. Um, that stability, that stick to itness, that perseverance. You know, that pride in 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 where you come from. Are, are things that I learned early uh, on and, and I still keep with me. And frankly, I do the work of government as a council member. I view my work through the prism of my youth and my upbringing in Stronghold. There's a period of time, though, when you didn't know that you were going to be a representative for your ward. And you had a couple different careers and forays into other areas, postal service, working for the zoo, who I never thought. Can you take us to that moment and your thought process around that as you were figuring out what were some of the questions that you had, some of the things that you were thinking about before you got to that moment of clarity? From my earliest memories, education was the foundation that my parents stressed, right? My both my parents, as I mentioned, born and raised here in the city, D.C. public schools through and through. Um, we started out in D.C. public schools, the Shade Elementary School, and um, not too long, at least for me, my parents were, were transferring us to, to Catholic school. Um, 
two parents who both graduated from D.C. public schools, uh, you know, determined that their kids weren't going to get the best quality education in the neighborhood school. We walked to school at Shayla Elementary School. I graduated from preschool from the rec at Edgewood, the old you know, field house. And you're um, still proud. I'm Graduating proud. from preschool. I'm proud, right? I still got that picture with the brown suit, three-piece. <laughs> but, but okay, like, but moving on. Yeah, right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> not going back to preschool. But my mom, you know, I asked her one, one day, it's like, you know, why did y'all take us out of public schools when that was the foundation for you all? And, 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 and she explains it, you know, almost like it was yesterday. She said that they, they were uh, considering skipping my, my oldest brother, uh, who still to this day is the smartest person in my family. Um, and my mom was, was open to the idea, but sort of also curious about why you wanted to skip my son. Like, what was so you know, special about that? Um, and she said she, she popped in one day just to observe. Uh-oh. Right? The pop in. And she said it was... Bananas. The, the height of chaos. And it wasn't very long after that where, where she made the decision. And my mom worked in the federal government. My dad was an electrician, graduated from Bale, worked in, in the D.C. government. Um, and they both took extra jobs. Right, my mom got another job, you know, working at Hex in Silver Spring. My dad took an extra full-time job working at night, cleaning buildings, and eventually worked his way up to be a manager uh, in that company. But they worked multiple jobs to send all four of us to, to Catholic school. Uh, and that educational foundation was stressed early on, and it was demonstrated by the sacrifices that they made um, to, to send us to to because uh, it wasn't very many people in my neighborhood who went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and so they stressed it for us. They, they wanted us to, to get a quality education, uh, to be able to pursue whatever our dreams ultimately ended up being. Now, you know, I, I did a number of different things that you mentioned. But ultimately, I wanted to be like my parents. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they had good government jobs. And in the District of Columbia, you know, a lot of people aspired to get a good government job. And mm-hmm. uh, I was one of those kids who you know, grew up in a neighborhood full of joy I didn't see any reason to do anything different, right? And although my, my parents talked about college uh, a lot, um, by the time I had, you know, matriculated to 12th grade at Woodrow Wilson High School, both my brothers uh, had gone to college but had left and had dropped out. And so for me, looking at them, you know, two guys who I admired, looked up to, who had both gone to college, had better SAT scores than I did, had, you know, better grades than I did, if they couldn't do it, then why would I even bother? So I didn't apply to a single college when I left uh, 12th grade at Woodrow Wilson High School. And ultimately, I just wanted that good government job. What I didn't know that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks was that they weren't just handing out good government jobs. <laughs> to 17-year-old high school graduates with really no experience. So, yeah, yeah, they didn't yeah. tell so, you that part. And, and that's when I pathway to the zoo. And, mm-hmm. um, but that was a long and winding road. And frankly, you know, without getting into too much detail, when I turned 18 years old, I was faced with that decision that a lot of kids growing up in the District of Columbia in the late 80s, early 90s, during the crack epidemic, were faced with. The rule in my house was the minute you turn 18 years old, you know, nobody was taking care of you anymore. You were taking care of yourself. You were contributing. If you still lived in the house, you were contributing to the household, right? That was part of the value uh, that, that I understood. And so when I turned 18, um, my friend Tito and I, we were trying to find a job. We took the civil service test. My cousin Keith and I went over to the armory and took the civil service test, um, and uh, we were waiting for a callback, and we never got that callback, right? And, and so um, we tried to figure out how we would 
take care of ourselves. You know, my mother at that point was, was the head of household. Uh, my sister was still in, in school. And, and you know, my, my dad, frankly, was, was you know, he, he fell victim to a lot of what, you know, people who were striving to take care of themselves in an environment where, where you know, he, he, he ran into addiction. Uh, he ran into addiction. And, and, and my brothers and I were trying to contribute. And Tito and I caught the subway at every mall, every, every line that had a stop on a mall, we, we would get off and, and apply uh, for a job in, in, inside those malls, and we, nobody called us back. Uh, we couldn't get a job. And so um, ultimately – like a real setback. Oh, it was a setback. I mean, yeah. I, I was – I didn't have any money in my pocket. I was still going to my brothers to get money, right? And, and you know, without putting too much of their business out there, um, you know, they didn't have jobs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Very few of the kids in my neighborhood that looked like me had actual jobs, right? I mean, the grown-ups who used to have jobs, you know – some of them didn't have jobs anymore. Some of them, my my parent, my kid, my uh, friends' parents were also addicted to drugs, right? Um, and, and the and the shame of it all is that you know the resources weren't flowing to to help you know people with addiction. It was you know it was spreading like wildfire, frankly. And and if you weren't on drugs, you were selling them. That was the pathway. In that same blue collar house, so where folks worked in government, where they owned. Barber and beauty salons, it had deteriorated to the point where, um, you know, folks were struggling to, to hold jobs or find jobs, uh, and and a lot of folks were were in the drug trade, and so and so you know I was faced with that same decision, and and and, and I had to make a choice, like a lot of young folks had to make choices, and I didn't make the right choice initially, uh, but you know, when I finally got that call back from the postal service, I mean I worked at the zoo. In one summer, because I couldn't get a job anywhere else, so I was working at the zoo, essentially making what I what I made. Okay, but were you shoveling anything? No, I was at the pop stop. Uh, I was oh, selling okay. ice cream. <laughs> I was selling ice cream. I was selling ice cream. So I was the guy who you see pushing that cart to, okay. to, to different areas of the zoo. Okay. Um, and and you know, I wasn't consuming the ice cream like a lot of the kids who were there or their parents. <laughs> I was selling it to them. So I was sweating, okay. handing out uh, refreshing ice cream. Um, but it was a struggle. I mean, it, you know, yeah. I did it. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it, it wasn't the thing that could put money in my pocket so I can contribute, right? I could, I still saw the struggles in my neighborhood, in my own household. And, and I saw the struggles around me. You know, there were people who were employed. Let me, let me just be clear. There were people who had jobs mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. Um, but I wasn't one of them. Right? <laughs> Until though. So there Until. was a pivot. There was a recovery, a decision to go to college and go to law school. And so The Postal Service saved my life. Really? I think. You know, I, I, you know, I look at what happened to a lot of the folks in my neighborhood. I watched my friends drop out of high school, go off to prison. Um, and sadly, a lot of them, not a lot, but enough of them died <laughs> in the neighborhood and in, in the District of Columbia. And so for me, um, when I got that call back, I mean – it, it was easy for me to make that decision to, to mm-hmm. pivot, mm-hmm. right? Well, well, a lot of folks couldn't make that decision. Um, and I went, you know, started off making $12.36 with benefits and all the overtime you could handle. I mean, I was making in 1994, 19 years old, 40-something thousand dollars, close mm-hmm. to $50,000. I was doing better than, you know, some of my friends' parents, Right. I mean, I, this is the reality. Right. It changed my life and my entire trajectory. 
Um, and I was financially secure for the first time in my adult life um, when a lot of folks in my neighborhood weren't. And, and there was a decision to go to college. And to absolutely. To no, so, 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 so I, you know, started working in the Postal Service um, and was doing well, right? But I still saw folks suffering around me. And about four years into my Postal Service career, uh, and I was teetering on, you know, actually maybe becoming a supervisor because they had talked to me about doing that. Uh, but the summer, uh, and actually the spring and summer 1998 was, was also, um, you know, transformative for me personally because although I was doing fine, contributing to the household, uh, you know, had my, you know, my vehicle, I had a girlfriend, I, I, was, I was fine. Um, I lost a couple of friends to gun violence. Um, uh, he was a twin in our neighborhood. He grew up with us. His, you know, his, his, his mom grew up in the neighborhood, and 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 he died, you know, in our neighborhood, and and it affected me like some of the other deaths that I experienced before that hadn't, uh, because it was so close and personal, and you know, it just hit me. I mean, it was it was it was the level of grief in a community that I hadn't experienced before, and 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 you know. But I also had a, a friend and mentor uh, in Roger Fairfax who, you know, despite his success coming out of the neighborhood, going to Harvard, you know, going to University of London to get a graduate degree, going to Harvard Law School, he, he, always, he came home faithfully during the summers and during holidays, and he would be in my ear. You know, if you want, you could do this. You know, I, I, I got a friend who, who, who's at this school. I call him. You still play ball, right? He might get you a scholarship. You can go to school, right? All you have to do is X, Y, Z. And so I had... Those really those three people, my then girlfriend, now my wife, Princess, my mom, uh, who's still just my our, our rock in the family, my angel, and I had Roger, and, and and so I made a tough decision to leave the postal service. I thought about like staying and trying to work, and right. and Roger's like, man, if you're gonna go, go all the way in, like just lean in and into it. And so I I remember in August, uh, it was shortly before the semester started. Uh, I, and mind you, I had gone to UDC twice. I, I kind of skipped over that part. Uh, my mom stayed on my case after, after high school, and I enrolled in UDC, took two classes, got an F1, withdrew from the other, dropped out. And then um, um, in 94, I went back to UDC, enrolled. And frankly, I just enrolled because they got tired of me standing up there <laughs> and told me we couldn't stand in the building anymore uh, unless we were enrolled. And so me and my friend, we, we, we had the money. We just paid it one day and, and, and enrolled. Um, and I never went to class, so I dropped out again in 94. But when I got that call, when I got the, you know, I, I saved up the money. I lost those two friends. I had Princess saying, do it, you can do it. My mom saying, you can do it. Roger saying, you can do it. And I remember taking that resignation in that day in August, handshaking, quivering, um, and submitted my resignation and, and, and resigning from the Postal Service and going back to UDC for the third time. And the third time was a charm. You resigned from your good government job I, yeah. that you had been waiting for the call for. Yeah, despite a lot of people telling me it would be the biggest mistake I ever make to leave that good government job. Right. Right? It was, or another good government job. Well, yeah, <laughs> Maybe this right, one isn't yeah, good, right, but it right. is. Well, I mean, that, <laughs> that was the one job. that people wanted, good. right? I right. mean, uh, but no, that, that, that government job, people told me, don't do it. Like once you, you you already tried college, can you? Right, you failed. Why right? you dropped out? Why are you gonna do it again? And so, a lot of people were saying no, but I had I had some solid folks uh, who said yes, uh, and I did it, and I took that leap of faith, and I and, and I went back, went to UDC for the third time. Uh, the Postal Service, UDC, those are I mean those institutions like really did it for me. UDC, 
I graduated from Howard with University of District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. I, there would be no Howard where they're not a UDC for me, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have the SAT scores to get admitted to Howard mm-hmm. after Wilson. I didn't have the money either. But I, I, I was able to save up money from the Postal Service, right. go back to UDC after a year, fall semester, spring semester, summer semester, continuously, I transferred to Howard in fall of 1999. Um, and and I, I did well. I did well, and, and UDC was that educational you know, foundation for post, you know, for secondary school. After I left and went to college, UDC is everything to me. Um, I love that you're, you're sharing that because we always hear working in education, working as a college counselor, a piece of my career, uh, you know, go to a four-year college. That, that's, yeah. that avenue is not often told to our students. Yeah. That, that go to a junior college, go to a UDC, go to, to, to prepare yourself to move on to the next step, which may be a Howard or, or that could be your terminal degree, uh, your associate degree. Um, but this really speaks to, you know, this t- topic of resilience that we've come up with for the DEF project because this is a little bit different. Resilience, we think you've been knocked down, but this speaks to the hope and the, and the, and the purpose and the vision that you had um, to say, I'm going to tender this resignation because I have the option to keep working. When I moved to D.C., Good government job was one of the first things I started hearing when I moved to D.C. 20 years ago. And that was the end all be all for so many folks. Get you a good government job and you set. But for you to, to pass that on and realize that there is something more out there that I need to be uh, pursuing to do more for my community, I think that really speaks to, to uh, who we are now. Rhonda, I'm not going to say where we are physically now. <laughs> I should have said this um, <laughs> when I introduced Kenya, but uh, we are at the museum, uh, a D.C. staple for fashion and uh, a great event space also here in D.C. But Rhonda, as a true native Washingtonian, I'm a 20-year transplant Washingtonian. There's no such thing as a true native. You're either native or you're not. I'm, I'm sorry. You are a native Washingtonian. I love it. I love it. It's like I am a 20-year transplant, transplant right. Washingtonian. So I don't want to say where we are because I feel like we should hear it from our native Washingtonian. Tell us where we are, Rhonda. Aaron, that's why we do this together. <laughs> Get it. So as we were talking about, we are here on the great Rhode Island Avenue. It starts at Route 1, turns into Rhode Island Avenue, empties down at Connecticut Avenue in the great Woodridge neighborhood, also in a business by uh, owned and operated by Native Washingtonians. So we are having a true, legit Native Washingtonian experience here in this neighborhood. Uh, we're going to ask you a little bit, what is the meaning behind that, and then Aaron's going to ask you about Lululemon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, the, the museum um, it is quintessential D.C. It um, so is. It, it, really, it really is. is. Uh, <laughs> Muhammad Hill, <laughs> Lee Greg Harrison, Mo and G uh, uh, started this place. I don't, I don't know exactly how many years ago it was, but when they, when they started it, uh, things took off. Uh, and and they they are they are running a successful business right here on Rhode Island Avenue. I'm proud to support it. They they have gotten the support from the city uh, with Great Streets grants and things like that. But but these are two guys who grew up in, in the District of Columbia, played basketball uh, with each other, um, uh, and and have just I think you know demonstrated how you know 
challenging entrepreneurship can be, but also, you know, what it means to represent your city. Uh, and, and there are a lot of folks who live here uh, in the DMV generally, in the District of Columbia in particular, uh, who support them. But they, I'm sure, have customers worldwide because the brand um, is, is, is powerful. And so, uh, yeah, every, every, every other week or so, I got to come up here and, and get some new gear uh, from those guys because they are killing it mm-hmm. uh, with this shop right here. And I'm proud to have them be located right here in War 5. Yeah, I've been telling Rhonda, um, once I got hip to the, the museum, it reminds me very much of the Marathon store in uh, Los Angeles, Nipsey Hussle's uh, place that he opened right there at Slauson and um, Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a part of that Los Angeles neighborhood. And I feel the same way when I came here and, and I'm now a, a loyal customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Um, but tell us, to have a, a place like the uh, museum here on Rhode Island Avenue in a city that is constantly changing, and whenever we use that term, that's just a code term for gentrifying, um, what does it mean to have this store here versus if a Lululemon moved in next door to this store uh, in, in a D.C., in a historical perspective of D.C.? No, that's a great question. You know, um, the District of Columbia has changed uh, over the last you know, few decades. Uh, being here my entire life, you know, and hearing the stories from my dad, and, you know, they used to have movie theaters. They used to have all these different places where they could go. I have dinner. Uh, and for me, you know, we had Bubba Muskogee's, right? We had, you know, uh, different places where we could go. Um, and, and a lot of those places aren't here anymore. We still have Carl's down the street, which is great. Um, but museum, to me, when I say it's quintessential D.C., you know, it, is, it has not been around as long as some of these other places. Uh, but it is, it is owned by black people who were born and raised here in this city. And there's a sense of pride associated with opening that door and coming in here and spending my money um, and helping to have things circulate locally as opposed to having it flow out of uh, the borders of the District of Columbia like a lot of you know, capital does frequently. And so um, having that, that right here in, in the heart of um, Ward 5 and along Rhode Island Avenue, uh, I think is, is powerful both in its imagery um, but also in the significance of them being able to hire right, and employ folks, right? I mean, that, that to me uh, is a story uh, in and of itself. Uh, and, and there are a lot of kids that grew up with them, right, because I've got them by a few years, um, but, but who, who haven't had the same level of success that they've had. And they look out at this door. They give back uh, at this door. And, and so I think, you know, it's one thing just to buy something out of here just to support two people who I know and love, uh, but it's another thing altogether to support uh, an establishment that supports the community. And it comes back to community again. So what we love about your service, what I love in particular, as we were talking about, is that you are all about black people and you really stand up for black people here, whether you're on the Judiciary Committee and passing legislation, Mm -hmm. ending what we would consider to be structural violence against some of our juveniles by putting, uh, sentencing them to life sentences or on the Economic Business and Economic Development Committee with the REACH Act. So can you talk a little bit about how that legislation helps to restore our resilience or speaks to our resilience as Native Washingtonians, as black people here, and addresses those historic inequities? Uh, you mentioned earlier about the covenant that was on your family's 
pass. Mm -hmm. So if you would take us into that and just really talk about how you can use legislation to help people to to recover from from historic inequity. Absolutely. No, um, you know, I I am in a position with with 12 of my colleagues to do some powerful things. And legislation as a tool to empower people and and transform lives uh, is, is extraordinarily important. Uh, and I wish more young folks, and that's part of what I try to do is, is to make sure I make the connection. Uh, because growing up, you know, we voted faithfully. I, that was just something. I was civic duty, and I was taught early and often but in my household. But, but we didn't have connections to, like, politics um, in the way that, that I do today. And so, you know, when I, when I sought up to do things as the chair of the Committee on Business and Economic, I'm not, I'm sorry, let me take it back, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, um, we didn't talk about this, but, but, you know, after I left Howard, I went to law school and everything. And I, so one of my jobs was as a prosecutor in Prince George's County. Um, and then I went to the Department of Justice and I was a civil rights uh, trial attorney in the special litigation section. And so I brought that experience to the council with me. Uh, and thinking about how to create opportunities and to address, you know, some of the remnants of mass incarceration was important to me. Um, you know, mass incarceration, um, it, what it did to, to the stronghold neighborhood and to neighborhoods across the District of Columbia, uh, we're still experiencing the results of that. And so, you know, comprehensive juvenile justice reform is something that I wanted to do because I understood full well those kids who went off to prison at 16, 17 years old um, who had to experience solitary confinement uh, as a juvenile, who were being housed although they were juveniles in our adult prison uh, over the jail uh, at the time. Um, you know, wanting to make sure that kids weren't shackled when they entered a courtroom. Uh, I mean, it's basic stuff when you think about it, but it is part of the, you know, inhumane treatment of young folks. Um, we, we, we incarcerate in this country more than any, you know, other country per capita. And for me, growing up, having been arrested myself in my own neighborhood, you know, I know what that feels like. Uh, what I don't know what it feels like are the stories of all these kids who, who went off to prison as young folks. And so I wanted to do something about that. And so I was able to do something about that with comprehensive juvenile justice reform uh, with, you know, to stop the indiscriminate shackling of, of those youth coming into court, to end uh, solitary confinement through legislation, to, to make sure uh, that Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act you know, kids who have been sentenced at very early age to long prison sentences can have their sentences reviewed. Um, and, and, you know, I, I knew people who were reaching out to me, telling me the stories about, you know, the young folks being off at Bureau of Prison Facilities, in jail, in prison for 20 years. I mean, so I wanted to do something about that. The NEAR Act was something that evolved because we, we, we have a crisis of homicides in the city, right? I mean, you know, growing up here, I saw it firsthand. You know, I saw, heard the gunshots, saw the yellow tape, saw the bloodstained streets. Can I ask a question of that? Is it a public health crisis? It is a public health crisis. Absolutely, it's a public health crisis. And frankly, we should be responding to it with the same sense of urgency that we respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, really putting the resources behind it. And, and one of the first things I did when I became chair in 2015 of the Judiciary and Public Safety Committee was to convene uh, people who are already doing the work. You know, people like Trayon White before he was a council member. You know, people like, you know, uh, Charles Thornton, you know, Ron Moten, Tony Lewis Jr., Silas Grant. Um, to say, 
what are we going to do to address this homicide, public health crisis that we're experiencing, this culture of gun violence that, that exists and has existed in this city uh, for decades. And, and it really culminated in uh, doing extensive research with my staff, uh, you know, going to White House convenings, figuring out what other jurisdictions were doing. And so the NEAR Act, which is short, NEAR Act is short for Neighborhood Engagement Achieve Results Act, was a data-driven, evidence-based, comprehensive approach to violence prevention and intervention. We looked at uh, what Dr. Gary Slutkin, who's an epidemiologist, was doing in Chicago uh, with his uh, cure violence model. We looked at what Devon Bogan was doing in Richmond, California with his Office of Neighborhood Safety. We looked at uh, the woman who started the Roca model in Boston. We were looking at what was going on um, uh, in Baltimore, and we brought it all back. And, and really the foundation was what was already happening in the District of Columbia with organizations like Pizza Hollicks, with, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, Ceasefire, Don't Smoke the Brothers and Sisters, Amalik Farrakhan and, and the work that he was doing. Uh, and it ultimately culminated in, in the NEAR Act. Uh, and so, you know, the REACH Act is just, again, another evolution uh, in my work as a legislator uh, in, in recognizing that as much as I love and, and it, was, it was more intuitive to do work around criminal justice reform, having grown up here, having seen it, experienced uh, the, both the, the, the good and the bad of law enforcement, you know, growing up playing ball in the Boys and Girls Club, over number 10 and number 12, you know, knowing what good policing looks like, what community policing looks like. Uh, both, you know, being arrested as a juvenile myself in my city, going off to investigate police departments as a civil rights attorney, I brought all that stuff together and, and transitioned from Judiciary Committee to the Committee on Business and Economic Development and really seeking ways to give people who have not had opportunities, economic opportunities. The REACH Act, um, although on its face might not seem like a tool to create economic opportunities, really uh, is an acknowledgement of, you know, just, just centuries of, of policies that have resulted in structural inequities mm -hmm. in the Columbia and across the United States. Uh, the REACH Act is short for Racial Equity Achieves Results. And we have to recognize that if we want to achieve results, uh, then we need to put a focus, a government-wide focus, on racial equity, social justice, and economic inclusion. And it started off with a working group of cross-sector individuals from nonprofit organizations, philanthropic organizations, business, uh, government, all coming together to work uh, as a part of a working group with me. And it ended up um, um, with the REACH Act, which, you know, I think has been one of the most transformative bills uh, to pass council uh, in recent history. And it established an office of um, racial equity in the council, a legislative office, as well as one in the executive. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the bills that get introduced, uh, and, and what the impact on racial equity is. We're going to be looking at the executive performance measures, uh, how the work that is being done in government impacts or doesn't. Uh, perhaps it exacerbates existing racial equities. Um, uh, We've got to reorient government. And frankly, we've got to do things differently. You know, that's saying about, you know, you do the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't expect a different result. Definition of insanity. There you go. <laughs> books we read, uh, it's called TDPB Reading, but, uh, mm -hmm. one of the books we read was uh, The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza, and in, in reading the book, I noticed that uh, she hashtagged Black Lives Matter uh, on Facebook around July 2013, 
and uh, in looking over your career as a councilman, that was around the time that you got started as a councilman here in D.C. Have you connected with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement here in D.C. or in general uh, in the work that you're doing? I have uh, over the years. Uh, they've been extraordinarily supportive of my work, particularly with the NEAR Act. Um, and they were a part of uh, a broader coalition of people who advocated in favor of the NEAR Act when, at the time, uh, the, the current executive did not support it. Um, you know, look, I took a licking on the NEAR Act. You know, people talk about a it. Licking? I, you know, I, I got my tail <laughs> kicked. I don't know if you could use expletives on here, but I got my, you know what, kicked. Yeah. Uh, because it, because it was framed in the media. Um, you know, I remember one of the first articles that ran was AP. Oh, paying them not to go to jail. It was, that it was, was lawmaker wants to pay criminals not to commit crime. Uh, it was bullshit, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But, but that's how they framed the narrative. And, and it doesn't matter how much time we spent doing the research, putting in work. To, to, and it doesn't matter that there were 20 titles to the NEAR Act, and that was just one. Uh, the Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement was framed as paying criminals not to commit crime, and we had to sort of redouble our efforts, reframe the issue, you know, push a different narrative. Um, and, and, and BLM locally, D.C. chapter, uh, were a part of a broader coalition of academics, nonprofit advocates, and others, uh, including many of my colleagues. It was, it was voted on unanimously by the council, um, but it wasn't funded initially. And so um, they helped to, to generate the support to, to get the funding. And I've worked uh, with the folks who, who, who are part of BLM locally. Um, um, you used the phrase earlier, radical imagination. And, and, and you, know, you know, if you do this right, this work, you can really, I think, spawn radical imagination in the minds of kids who have been pushed to the margins. Those kids who wake up in the middle of the night to the sounds of gunfire like I did, you know, who experienced that yellow tape when they, you know, leave in the morning to go to school, right? Those kids who are too tired to hope, you know, are struggling to understand what love looks like, you could, you could put resources, make the investment. Um, um, and I think we have to do better by that. And we've got to be more radical in our imagination as elected officials to do things differently. So one of the things that you want to do differently is the Child Wealth Building Act, baby Absolutely. bonds. Everybody's going to be a trust fund baby. Look, why not make every That's kid right. Right. who comes from a family, you know, who, who makes 500 times the, the, the federal poverty line, uh, a trust fund baby, right? I mean, I, you know, and, and I say it a little in jest, but but no, that was serious. totally in jest on my part. No, no, because <laughs> I'm but, totally with it, just for the yeah, record. Listen, <laughs> if we do it right, I mean, imagine... Right? Let's use our radical imagination mm-hmm. that every kid that is born in the District of Columbia in a family with you know, little means, but also with means up to 500 times the federal poverty line, about $130,000 or so yeah. uh, for a family of four, gets $1,000 at birth. And it goes up to $2,000 depending on the family income. I mean, you're talking about you know, $40,000, $50,000 when you turn 18 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine what you can do with that. Let's imagine that. So, in a way, how do you envision that uh, that financial security helping youth to recover from setbacks? So, if we look at them at 18 years old, what do you see them having this resource being able to do? It's a resource that most 18-year-olds in the District of Columbia that that are, are black or brown don't have typically, right? I mean, think about the stat: uh, white median family uh, uh, wealth. In the District of Columbia, eight, 81 times that 
of the medium black family. Um, and so imagine having that amount when you turn 18 years old to do things like perhaps invest in yourself, uh, whether it is your education and trying to go to college or picking up a trade or some sort of certification in, in, in the tech industry. Imagine what that can do for an 18-year-old, right? Imagine, you know, being able to invest it in the market somewhere, maybe, you know, in housing or some other uh, a thing that is essential uh, in this district of Columbia. I mean, it, it absolutely changes the trajectory yeah. of that 18 year old. It's the hope I think yeah. could be mm-hmm. for some kids who otherwise don't have hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know at an early age and are getting the supports, you know, in financial literacy, when you turn 18 mm-hmm. to know how to use it, um, it could be transformative for a kid. And frankly, um, it's the type of investment that we should be making directly with individuals the same way we have for decades in buildings. We've built up this city. Um, any given day, you can look up and see cranes right. galore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine making those types of investments directly in individuals uh, who live in communities uh, that are struggling to make the ends meet. Yeah. yeah, I see firsthand all the time in students I work with that have received full scholarships to college. Yeah. Um, not, not based on anything but the fact that they needed, needed those full scholarships yeah. to college. So for and that's what this is. And college, of course, is not the only route. Like you said, uh, investing in real estate, investing in, a, in your own business. But having that means to do that, it literally changes trajectories of generations to come just, just by having that one small baby bond. Right. Uh, yes. So Every, every baby born in the district of a certain means to be a trust fund baby, right? Yes. I, I love like it. That. I just wish that I was, I'm sad that I was born too late. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I graduated from, uh, from high school, the illustrious Benjamin Panneker Academic High School. Oh, yeah. Look, I, I'm a Wilson Tiger diplo- myself, but. <laughs> I got a diploma <laughs> when I graduated. I didn't get anything else. Right, right. So we're going to bring this to a conclusion by talking about leadership. You've had, you know, amount of, tremendous amount of leadership experience, whether it's formal leadership on the council or learning the uh, fundamentals of leadership in these other jobs. So Erin, why don't you uh, explore that? Erin always has a particular take on leadership as well, because you guys share that both of you are uh, fathers to daughters. We are both fathers, um, two daughters, two, I also have two daughters. (laughs) Um, Growing up and, you know, for, for your parents to have grown up in D.C., for you to grow up in D.C., and the world that you are experiencing today as a father with your daughters and the experience that your daughters are having versus what the experience you had and, of course, your parents had, how does that affect you as a leader? Does it, is the fire still beneath your feet to say this must happen even though I'm able to provide this for my family but my city needs this? How does, how does being a father with new means or new resources in your life and a changing DC affect how you felt, how you lead today versus how probably you felt you would be leading when you left your job at the post office? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think as a, as a father of daughters, as a girl dad, uh, it is important to me to ensure that my kids understand their power and, and their potential. Um, you know, being in the same house, though, where I grew up, it, it, is, it is interesting because although my wife and I are more educated than our parents were, I have to put that in perspective. And ultimately, my leadership, I understand that every 
kid in District of Columbia deserves the same opportunities that Princess and I can give our two daughters. And that's what I'm fighting for. Whether you live in Stronghold, whether you live in Upper Northwest, or if you live in Far Southeast, you should have opportunities in this city. And, and if we don't get this right as elected officials, if we're not making the investments to empower uh, you know, these uh, young men and women, um, then they won't know that there's a space for them in this city. They'll be here physically, but they'll be looking around trying to figure out where they belong. And I hear that today. Uh, and I don't want that to be the case for my, my daughters, Casey and Josie, but I also don't want that to be the case for anybody else's sons or daughters uh, in the District of Columbia. We've had a hell of an 18 months. It's been crazy. And then also just over life in general. You've shared some challenges, some ups and downs, um, a lot of joy. So when you need to uh, recharge, when you need to bounce back, Big Sean says, last night I took an L, but tonight I bounced back. Today I bounced back. It's one of my jams. And it's something, it is such my jam. (laughs) Because it's so true. It's so true. You take an L, but then you have to bounce back. And that's one of our guiding phrases for this, this series, this season. So what's yours? What helps you to recharge when you've had a, a setback? What are you queuing up on your musical device, whether it be a record player? Maybe you're a record player kind of guy. Whether it's, do you have a disc man still? <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people might have one for nostalgia. I don't, I right? don't, I don't, I don't. I have a DVD player, but I don't have that. See, um, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't very far yeah, off. Yeah. No, I did, I did just, I bought my daughter, Casey, a record player. Uh, I did just buy her, I bought her a record player, and, and she uses it, which is great. Very old school, uh, yes. It is, it is. Uh, again, that sound of vinyl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I live in a different stuff. I'm, I'm a native D.C. Washingtonian, so Go-Go is always... You're a D.C. dude. We call that a D.C. I'm a D.C. dude, right? And so yeah. it's always some Go-Go on my playlist. Do you want to um, call out somebody in particular? No, how much I'm getting in trouble. I, <laughs> you ask, I know, we asked Marcus Bachelor the same question. He's like, no. I'm going to call out every group. I'm going back to Trouble Funk, <laughs> dropping the bomb on you. To, to EU, right? I mean, everybody knows doing the butt, right? I mean, right, when, which when, is when great, you have Glenn Close, but also I know, like, right? it's, it's, come on it's now, like y'all. commercial, right? Yes. Oh my God. Um, but yeah. you know, I, I'm also a JYB Sardines, right? That's right. Uh, um, beans. You know, but, yes. but, but I, my first experience was going up in a black hole, you know, and here in Essence, you know, talking yes. about working the wall and rocket <laughs> and stuff like that, right? So. <laughs> You know, um, the big G and backyard, they killing it, yes, right? I, yes. Northeast Groovers. Yeah. Huh? What you know about that? Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, I still play Groovers every now and again. Of course. Um, of but course. also, I, I will venture, and when, I, when I'm not listening to Go-Go, I might put on some hip-hop, you know, and, and do that. Um, and every now and again, I'll put on a little freeway. And, and, you know, what we do is something that just is the beat that gets me and it, it gets me energized. And so when I'm not listening to Go-Go, uh, I might put on some Jay Z. I put on some 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 Freeway, or, or um, I might slow it down sometimes too. Actually, Let I'm all over the this. place. Actually, it's, well, we have to have range. We have to have range. So you're walking into the Wilson mm-hmm. Building, and you know that you are going to have to promote legislation that not everybody is going to be feeling. You have some. Look at you. Okay. You have some colleagues who we know are going to perhaps uh, force you to make your case. Imagine you're like LeBron putting on your headphones. It's so freeway. It's freeway. Right. Nice. What we do. Yeah, yeah. What we do. That's yeah. Cool. That's I cool. still hustle till the sun come up. Yeah. That's right. Pack a 40 when the sun go down. 
It's a cold winter. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I mean, it. It, it. Uh, it is, it, it gets you charged because you know what? I am living my ancestors' wildest dreams. Amen. Oh, that's right. The block I come from, it wasn't, by far, it was not the worst block in the District of Columbia. In fact, it was a wholesome blue-collar working-glass block mm-hmm. until the crack epidemic, until the murder capital, until people started dying. And I know mm-hmm. both what struggle looks like firsthand, yeah. right? I've seen it, but I also know what opportunity looks like. So, so when I'm going down in that building and it's something that I know is going to be tough, I'm channeling stronghold because ultimately when I hang this up, when I take off the suit and politics, uh, I know that if I ever fall, the folks in stronghold, they'll pick me up and dust me off the same way they did when I was young, right? And, and for me, that's the reality. It keeps me grounded. When I leave here, I'm going back up to play softball with the homies from the neighborhood. And, and that's real for me. Uh, politics is just part of my evolution. Uh, and I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones that can sit here with a law degree today when there were so many others who were just as smart, if not smarter, than I was who didn't get the same opportunities. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah, this has been a true pleasure. Um, we, we certainly appreciate you spending time to pour into the DAP project. And uh, we, we definitely want you to do it again sometime. Appreciate so, it. Yeah. It's a pleasure for me as well. Thank you for listening to The DAP Project. We hope this conversation inspired you to dream, lean on your community when times are hard, and continue pushing to your grandest ambitions. Before we go, we want to remind you of our July selection of TDPB reading, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Our book talk will be Saturday, July 31st on IG Live at the.dap.project. And we'll have a special guest joining us, Brandon Wilburn Herbert, host of the Instagram account, and my good friend, B loves the love. Because she loves love, she loves romance, but she also loves sci-fi and Octavia Butler. Remember, resistance is a highway with many lanes, and we hope you find yours. Take care, folks.